Well, hello, friends. Grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, be with you. Welcome to Sermons from the Mount podcast. My name is Pastor Mark O'Neill. I currently serve as the pastor of Mount Olivet United Methodist Church in Manio, North Carolina. Each week, we will post here audio recordings of the sermons that I preach from that church. Hope this one is a blessing to you. God bless. Take care. gospel lesson this morning and the sermon text comes from the gospel of Matthew. We're in the 18th chapter and we're going to take a look at verses 15 through 20. So again, this is Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20. Here now the words of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. He says, if another member of the church sins against you, Go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, Let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. My friends, this is the word of God for you and I, the children of God. Thanks be to God. Well, my friends, many of you know that before I was called into life as a preacher, that I was a lawyer. My practice specialized in residential real estate, which meant that I was the guy you would come to see when you bought a house or refinanced your mortgage or needed a title search done. Sometimes we would have a scenario of a seller of one home buying another one on the same day, and we would handle both transactions. And to make it easy, we tried to handle both of those transactions at roughly the same time. And so it was during one of these back-to-back transactions that I had a family in my office. And I had their sale file out first. And we went over the settlement statement, which lists all the charges associated with the sale. And per the contract he had with his buyer, he was paying some of their closing costs. And they were all itemized. And two of the costs that were itemized was a termite inspection and a home inspection. And when I mentioned that, he bristled a little bit and told me he didn't even know why they were necessary. That he'd been in that home for 20 years and never had a problem. He seemed offended that his buyer would even ask for inspections to be done. And he said, I told them nothing was wrong with the house. They didn't believe me. It's a sad state of affairs when you can't take a man for his word. So he and his wife signed all the sales paperwork and I closed that file and I put it to the side and then I pulled out the folder and file associated with their purchase. 
And I went over their settlement statement for their purchase. And I got to the section where all the expenses were located. And guess what was there? <laughs> a termite inspection and a home inspection. I looked up at him, and I kid you not, he said, yeah, our seller said everything was fine, but we just wanted to make sure. <laughs> you see, friends, he had no problem investigating and finding out and pointing out what was wrong at the other guy's house. He was a little less enthusiastic about that inspector's flashlight being turned towards him. I want to come back to that in a minute. Because I think that story brings up what we don't think about in terms of the passage that I read this morning. Now, honestly, this lesson is kind of a tough one for me. Because I do not like confrontation. I don't. And many of you in here and watching online may all also be confrontation averse. And yet it seems that Jesus this morning is putting confrontation at the forefront for us. It starts from the individual level, and then the numbers witnessing this confrontation gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And what is the confrontation over? Well, as Barney Fife would say, it's the one subject you can't talk enough about, and that's sin. The first verse says, if another member of the church sins against you. Now, I want us to stop right there. Because I want to point out to you that in most of the early, early manuscripts of this verse, do not contain that clause against you. In fact, if you look at the number of translations that were out there, maybe the one you have even in your hand, it's about 50-50 as to whether that clause against you was even included. And I read this week that since the earlier manuscripts written closer to the original do not contain it, and that most translation changes over the years are additions to and not subtractions from, that it's probably closer to the original intent of the verse was meant to read simply if another member of the church sins. It doesn't have to be against you. What that means is that right out of the gate, we are urged by Jesus to confront our brothers and sisters on behaviors that may not even affect us if they are sinful actions. If we simply see a member of the church engaged in sinful behavior, we're supposed to go to that person and point it out. And if they listen to us, all is good. If they don't listen, then we need to take a couple witnesses with us and try again. And if they still don't listen, well, then we tell the church. And even if they still don't listen, then Jesus tells us as a matter of church discipline that we're to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Some translations say a pagan and a tax collector, which oftentimes has been explained as kicking them out of the community. Our buddy J.C. Ryle says that Jesus intends every congregation to have the power of excluding disobedient members from participation, and that we must sorrowfully regard them as ones who have shaken off all Christian principles and will be guided by no higher motives than a heathen would be. And so we kick them out, right? No. With all due respect to Bishop Ryle, who I love dearly, 
I don't think he's right here. I don't think Jesus ever meant for us to kick anybody out, to turn our backs on anyone, to shun anyone, to regard anyone as incapable of being saved. I don't think Jesus ever intended for these five verses ever to be used as an endpoint or a stop sign to forgiveness, grace, love, and mercy. And here's why I say that. Friends, it is dangerous to take one set of verses and take those out without looking at what comes before and what comes after. So here are the words that Jesus says right before the five verses you and I read this morning. He says, what do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that anyone should be lost. Does that sound like we're supposed to give up? If it's God's will that nobody should be lost, and if we proclaim that we are followers of God's will, then don't you think we better keep on going after that one over and over and over again as many times as it takes? What comes right after the five verses we read this morning? Peter asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive somebody? Seven times? Jesus says, nah, man, not seven times. Try 77 times. Or in some translations, seven times seven. One of my commentaries said, he means that we are to study a general spirit of mercy and forgiveness towards our brothers and sisters. We are to bear much and put up with much rather than quarrel. We are to overlook much and submit to much rather than have any strife. We are to lay aside everything like malice, strife, revenge, and retaliation. Such feelings are only fit for heathens. They are utterly unworthy of a disciple of Christ. Again, does that sound like we're supposed to turn our backs on our brothers and sisters? Even if they don't listen to our concerns for their behavior? I would think that doing that would bring about the quarrel and strife and malice and revenge and retaliation that comes from an unforgiving, hardened heart. You know what comes after that? Jesus then tells us the parable of the unforgiving servant. We are, Jesus says, every one of us, people whose debt has been forgiven again and again to astonishing degrees. Only a self-deceptive fool would ever conclude that the amount he has had forgiven in his life amounts to very little. Each one of us is the servant who had a billion-dollar debt canceled free and clear. The harshest words Jesus speaks anywhere in this chapter 18 is not verses 15 through 20, but instead the verse is at the end of the final parable regarding what could happen to those who have been forgiven much, but who then turn right around and refuse to forgive someone else even a little. Again, does this sound like we're supposed to be kicking people out? Ah, but Pastor Mark, you may be thinking, 
That's well and good, but doesn't even Jesus conclude this with a call to treat the unrepentant person as a Gentile, a pagan, or a tax collector? So it's like that's kind of the end of the story, isn't it? Not really. Because I want you to think about who is saying these words. It's Jesus. And that's got to change the way we view it. Now, you would be right that in, in Jesus' day, if the Pharisees or most anyone else in the religious establishment told you to treat someone like a Gentile or a pagan or a tax collector, you'd know what that meant. Because all you'd have to do was observe how the Pharisees treated those people who fit into any of those categories. Pagans and Gentiles and tax collectors were bums and lowlifes and undesirables. They had no place amongst God's chosen people and no seat at God's holy table. They could not eat with you and you would never be caught dead eating with them because that kind of association with sinners was what precisely a religious person in good moral standing would not and could not do. And unfortunately, I think that's how we tend to apply these five verses to all the unrepentant sinners around us. But again, friends, take note of who said it. Jesus said it. Did Jesus ever meet a pagan he didn't seem to like? Did he ever meet a Gentile that he wasn't trying to bring into the kingdom? Did Jesus spurn and shun tax collectors and other sinners who fit into these broad categories of people? Of course not. He got into trouble with the religious establishment of his day precisely because of his willingness to associate with these folks. I mean, think about who wrote the gospel we just read from. It's Matthew. Don't you think he would know how good and wonderful it was that Jesus did not avoid tax collectors? What did Matthew do for a living? Tax collector. Would he have written this gospel if that's how Jesus had operated? Probably not. Precisely because all of that is true, it seems unlikely that Jesus uses this term tax collectors and Gentiles in the most negative sense. Again, from one of my commentaries, instead I would suggest that Jesus was being gently ironic here, telling his disciples that even when you've done all you can to come to an understanding with a person whose behavior is genuinely difficult, and even if you had to keep some distance from such a person for various reasons, you are, even so, never finished with reaching out to that person in grace and love. Even as Jesus started his ministry, reaching out to those deemed pagans and tax collectors in his day, so we continue being loving toward and hopeful about and much in prayer about even those people who don't want to listen to us or to the church. When you combine this insight about Jesus with the surrounding material in Matthew chapter 18, especially the parable of the unmerciful servant that comes next in the chapter, you realize that what Jesus is actually saying is that even when things go about as wrong as they can go within the Christian community, there is still the need to offer love and a grace that never ends. Love and a grace that never ends. That should be good news for all of us. And here's why. Think back to my buddy with his termite and home inspection. If I read this passage correctly, then what it does is, is it gives me some amount of instruction to hold you accountable should I see you living an unrepentant life. 
But what does it also mean? It means that you are to hold me accountable as well. Right? This passage is not a one-way street. Now, some of y'all might know this and some of y'all don't. Some of y'all might be with this and some of y'all won't. But we're all sinners. All of us. And we're stubborn. Most of us. And we may have no problem using verses 15 through 20 to point out the sins of others. But maybe a little reluctant to submit to it ourselves. 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 10 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So friends, if we admit this morning that we are all sinners, and if we admit further that we can be stubborn, then aren't all of us so, so glad that what Jesus is asking here is not that others turn their backs on us in our worst times or in our wandering times, in our unrepentant times, but that others never stop reaching out to us, never stop loving us, never stop offering forgiveness to us, never stop urging us to seek God, never stop praying for us, never stop being our brothers and sisters. I mean, isn't that exactly what we should want? And if so, then shouldn't that be what we're willing to offer as well? Because like we've talked about before, friends, all God wants from us is to treat each other the way God treats us. And God doesn't give up on us. God never gives up on us. But he does ask us to repent. He does ask us to acknowledge our own sin. He does ask that we seek his face. And he does surround us with a community that above all things should be about reconciliation and restoration. And part of that means that we have to be willing to be held accountable. It's an accountability though not used as a weapon to shame or demean or to judge but accountability as an act of love and mercy that never stops trying to point each other to God. Question is, friends, how do you want to be held accountable? Then practice what you preach so that we can truly be a community that is restorative to each other's souls. But we can't be that type of community if we are only content to point out the specks in each other's eyes with a big old log sticking out of ours. And so it's to that end that I want to invite you to join me in a time or a moment of prayer and reflection. Now, I have developed over the course of the year a fondness for the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. 
I find the liturgies contained inside of it to be beautiful and powerful. John Wesley says that I believe there is no liturgy in the world, either in ancient or modern language, which breathes more of a solid, scriptural, rational piety than the common prayer of the Church of England. <coughs> so I thought, what better time than right here and right now to join together, confess our sins before God, to repent of them, and to feel the grace and mercy that God offers. <coughs> Here's how it begins. Listen to how beautiful this is. Dearly beloved brethren, the scripture moveth us in sundry places to acknowledge and confess our manifold sins and wickedness. <coughs> Excuse me. And that we should not dissemble nor cloak them before the face of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, but confess them with a humble lowly, penitent, and obedient heart to the end that we may obtain forgiveness of the same by his infinite goodness and mercy. And although we ought at all times humbly to acknowledge our sins before God, yet ought we most chiefly so to do when we assemble and meet together to render thanks for the great benefits that we have received at his hand, to set forth his most worthy praise, to hear his most holy word, and to ask those things which are requisite and necessary as well for the body as the soul. Wherefore, I pray and beseech you, as many as are here present, to accompany me with a pure heart and humble voice unto the throne of the heavenly grace. Friends, let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou those who are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. My friends, Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who desireth not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live, and has given power and commandment to his ministers to declare and pronounce to his people, being penitent, the absolution and remission of their sins. He pardoneth and absolveth all those who truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel. Wherefore, let us beseech him to grant us true repentance and his Holy Spirit, that those things may please him which we do at this present, and that the rest of our life hereafter may be pure and holy, so that at the last we may come to his eternal joy, through Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Until next time, God bless. Take care.